to just work through books of the Bible, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. And so we're starting the book of 2 Corinthians this morning. If you have a Bible, you can just open it up to the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. As you might guess from the second, uh, this is one of many letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he planted in the ancient city of Corinth. Um, <coughs> when you broaden out, if you were to read the entire book in the setting, uh, in a single sitting, you would discover that it's a book full of difficulty. Between 1 Corinthians, which we just recently studied, and 2 Corinthians, everything hits the fan in Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth. Now, we weren't present. We don't have a direct record of what happened, but we can put together some of the pieces from what we find in this letter, and here's the gist of it. Paul goes to visit the church in Corinth as planned, and there is a faction within the church that decides to finally put Paul in his place. They criticize Paul, uh, they seek to overthrow his ministry, and to divorce this church that he planted from his influence. This catches Paul completely off guard, and so he leaves, and then he writes what he calls later in this letter a severe letter to deal with the issue. The people who were leading this revolt, if you will, uh, the church shuts outside of its doors and removes, and then those people, uh, as a side note, end up turning around, repenting, and coming back in, and now Paul is writing a second letter because he's just recently heard that they've had such a positive response to his rebuke. And so as he goes through 2 Corinthians, he does a couple of things. The, the primary thing he does is he says, hey, I'm going to come back someday. Let's prepare to have a better visit. And so he tries to close the book on this thing that's gone wrong. He tries to explain his ministry he creates a defense for his ministry, knowing that others will question him. So he lays it out on the table and says, when people criticize me, here's what you should understand. And he does a little bit of housekeeping. But what's striking is Paul lays out who he is as a minister of Jesus Christ in this, passage, uh, in this letter, as he defines what Christian ministry should like, look like, and even apostleship, he talks a good deal about suffering, pain, weakness, struggle. In fact, if you read the letter closely, that's one of the great criticisms that Paul's critics have of him. This guy, an apostle, have you seen what his life is like? It's clearly, you know, God is clearly not happy with Paul. God is clearly not using Paul. Have you heard him speak? He's weak and fumbling in his words. And so he seeks to reorient for the church in Corinth and for us today an understanding of how the Christian life works, on what Christian ministry looks like. And surprise, surprise, you could sum it up by just saying that the Christian ministry, the life of the Christian, looks like the work and the life and the person of Jesus. And so he opens the book here with the first 11 verses, and he talks about suffering and affliction more than most books of the New Testament do in these 11 verses. The word affliction occurs here, the word suffering occurs here more than some other entire books of the New Testament. It's a primary topic. And what I'd like to do for the next few weeks is recognize what suffering does in our life when it comes to making sense of life, when it comes to meaning of life. Because let's be honest, 
All of us live life with meaning. You may or may not be a Christian this morning. You may or may not be religious. But if you find yourself here this morning, there's a reason you get out of bed. And there's a reason for every decision you make. And it has to do with some sort of meaning. You see your life as an equation that equals out to a sum. But the wrench in the machine, you know, the thing that interferes with the cogs, the grist in the mill is always suffering. And a lot of times we, we hit a, a, a pothole so hard it makes us question. It makes us wonder. It takes uh, the meaning that we make and it scatters all the variables all over the floor to be put together again. And Christians are not protected from this. Right? We have this struggle. Read the Psalms. The Psalms are full of the psalmist going, I can't make sense of my life right now. If you are God and you are good and I belong to you, then why this? And we'll look at this from a couple of different angles. The goal will be to help us find meaning in the midst of suffering. But this morning, I want to do... Uh, I want to go about this in a particular way. One of the primary ways that we understand meaning is through context. I'll give you an example. When I say the word grill, and that's all I say, you don't actually know what I'm talking about. I could be talking about the front of a car. I could be talking about a barbecue. I could be talking about you getting up in my face. I could be talking about giving you the third degree, right? All of those are possible. Unless I give you context and say, hey, why don't you come over and I'll grill some hot dogs, you don't know what that little word means on its own. The second thing I want to point out is that when, when you use context to understand meaning, it either fits or it doesn't. Take, for example, encountering a zebra. Okay? In most places, that's a surprising feature. But not if you're at the zoo. Right? Context matters. If you say, yesterday I saw a zebra, I might be surprised. If you say, yesterday I saw a zebra at the zoo, that makes sense. Okay? So the question I want us to ask this morning is, in the big quilt of the Christian life, is there room for a square called suffering? Or is that square just a tear in the fabric that says, no, this is a broken quilt? That's the question I want to ask. And the way I want to do it, I'm, I'm relatively excited about, I just want to look at the first two verses of 1 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians, excuse me. Now, here's why I'm excited about this. Because this is the greeting. This is just Paul saying, I'm Paul, you're the church in Corinth, and then he gives his standard greeting. But that word standard gives us uh, a reason to look closer at this. Every letter Paul opens, he opens like this. The, the greeting that he gives here, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, is standard with very little variation across his letters. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, is standard as an introduction in most of his letters. And so really then, this gives us a window into the Christian life as Paul sees it. And so it gives us a good place to ask, this context, the Christian life, is it incompatible with suffering or not? Does suffering make sense in this? So what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray um, after reading these two verses, and then we'll take a closer look at that question. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Acacia, grace to you and peace from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, if there's one thing true about suffering, it's that as long as it's hypothetical, it's relatively easy to deal with. But when we're in the midst of it, when we're experiencing it hands-on, when it's not merely theory, it can shatter paradigms. It can twist our understanding. It can make us question to the core of our being. And this is true of every thought pattern. This is true of every philosophy. This is true of every religion. There's the question, what about suffering? But I thank you, Lord, that in in your truth as recorded in the scriptures as manifested in God become flesh Jesus Christ makes meaning in the midst of suffering and I ask Lord that you would connect us with that context this morning and that you would reorient our lives especially for those of us who are in the midst this morning that you would reorient our lives around the full context of a life lived with the loving good, and sovereign God. I pray this in your name. Amen. As I already mentioned, this is just a greeting. Unlike our modern letters where dear so-and-so goes at the front and sincerely so-and-so goes at the end, in all of the Roman world, letters always began with a to and from right at the beginning as well as a greeting and even most times, as Paul will do as we'll see next week, a prayer. The format is standard. Many of the things that Paul says here are relatively standard. For example, when he says peace to you, that's a normal and standard greeting for the Jew. When he says grace to you, blessings to you, that's a normal and standard greeting for the Romans. And he takes them both and he puts them together. Now that in and of itself is significant because it reminds us that the church in Corinth And the church in Ephesus and the church in the first century was made up of these two groups of people that didn't get along. And every greeting reminds us that both of them are present. But more than that, when Paul says peace, he means something particular. When he says grace, he means something particular. He takes this standard greeting, but it means something different because he views it through the lens of who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ. So as we look at it this morning, it gets us well acquainted with the quilt, right? It gives us the full picture of Christianity. And I want to just look at verse 1 to get us started. I want you to notice that Paul introduces himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. That little phrase, the will of God, occurs about a dozen times across the New Testament. A lot of times in settings like this. Paul says that he is an apostle because God willed him to be. In other words, he didn't go to apostle training school. He didn't elect to be an apostle. He wasn't voted into office by other people in the church. It was God and God alone who said, Paul, you are my apostle. That's what it means by the will of God. But the other uses of this verse broadens out the category What happens according to the will of God? And we see across Paul's ministry, across Peter's ministry, across this usage that the will of God defines and determines our life. That God is active in history. That he's not like the deist concept of a watchmaker who just built the world world like a beautiful watch and just set it and let it run its course. But that he's proactively involved 
intimately involved in human history. And that's true at the biggest level. That's the story of what the Bible is. The Bible is a record of God's actions and words in human history, all culminating in the coming of Jesus Christ. If I can very swiftly broaden out the box of the will of God, take what it says in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy that predates the coming of Jesus Christ by 500 years and yet lays out theologically exactly what the cross was going to mean. And it says right in the middle of that chapter, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God's will was the death of Jesus the innocent. It didn't happen by mistake. It wasn't circumstantial. It was divinely determined, which is why Peter in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost says both you Jews unjustly put Jesus, your Messiah, to death by the foreordained will of God. But let's just look at Paul's apostleship. Because let's be honest, we look at that and that sounds like a pretty good will. If God wants something for my life, being at the top of the Christian food chain sounds pretty good. Being a public representative of Jesus Christ, that's something I would sign up for. Is it at least possible, as far as we've gotten this morning, that we could say, God has will for your life, and there's speed bumps, there's interruptions, there's detours, but that has nothing to do with God's will. Suffering is just something happen- that happens, but God's will is elsewhere. It wasn't that way for the Apostle Paul. Now, I want to remind you that his calling was drastic. He wasn't called out of seminary. He wasn't even called out of the front pew of his church he was called in the midst of traveling to persecute the church of Christ. On the road to Damascus, still breathing threats against the church, the risen Lord Jesus appeared to him and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? That's where Paul was when he was called. But what I want to draw your attention to is how that calling is explained You see, in that encounter, Paul is struck blind by the encounter, recognizes that Jesus really is the Messiah, and that's all he knows. I'll remind you that no Christian wants to be around Paul because in Paul's possession is the ability to throw Christians in all of the synagogues into prison. And that's what he's headed to Damascus to do. He was there when the first Christian was stoned to death for his belief, Stephen the martyr holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. And so God needs to employ a little bit of help, somebody to disciple Paul. And so he preemptively goes to a man named Ananias, and he says, I've got this guy, Paul. He's useful for me for ministry. And Ananias goes, hey, wait a minute. You're talking about Saul, right? That guy? Do you understand what he's doing to the church? I don't want to even make myself known. I don't want to introduce myself and say, Jesus Christ sent me. That's a death sentence. Listen to the words, the words that God speaks to this man to explain Paul's future, an apostle by the will of God. This is what he says in chapter 9, verse 16. 
Uh, in fact, 15 for context. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It's written into the contract. What does it look like to be an apostle of Jesus Christ? It looks like suffering for the sake of Jesus. And the truth is, you just have to keep thumbing through the book of Acts to see how that plays out in Paul's life. The truth is, you just have to read the rest of 2 Corinthians as Paul makes this plain and says, you know what, multiple times the Jews have given me 40 lashes minus one. Three times I've been shipwrecked. I've been stoned and left for dead. I've been hungry. I've been thrown out of cities. The list goes on and on and on. And those weren't interruptions to God's will. They were part and parcel with it. Now that might sound like bad news. Maybe it would be easier to imagine a God who wasn't responsible for the hard things in your life. But it's only good news in a very shallow way. Do you really want to settle with a world where God can be caught off guard by something else? Do you want to settle with a world where the things that happen in your life surprise God? Or that there's some other power that God is too weak to deal with? Listen, I know that's our experience, is it not? We don't generally look suffering in the eye a block down the way and walk towards it. In fact, we're incredibly good at swerving. But that doesn't stop suffering in our life. And a lot of times when it comes, we are shocked. We are surprised. We are caught off guard. We are reeling. Is God? You see, one of the tremendously good messages of the Bible is the sovereignty of God. That there is nothing greater or bigger or more knowing or more strategic That there is nothing in our lives or in the world at large that can detour around the control of the living God. Now that in and of itself is just looking at the life of one man. Maybe you can just say to yourself, well, I'm glad I'm not an apostle. But we still have to do with that phrase, by the will of God. And I want you to listen to the words of 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter knows a little bit about suffering as well. And here he's writing to the church scattered across the world. He's reflecting on his own life. And he's encouraging them. And he says this at the end of chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. There it is. Those who suffer according to God's will. Now that doesn't get us to the why. At all. Right? That might even create more questions than it solves. If God is behind the veil of my suffering, then is he really good? Why? Why would God allow me to go through these things? I read the Bible and I see occasions of deliverance. I see miraculous perseverance. I see incredible protection. And I look at my life and it seems devastated, ransacked, emptied. 
It doesn't just ask us, make us ask why, it makes us ask where. God, where are you? If you're the God of the Bible, the God who saves, then save me. Let me just point out to you that those cries are not unique to your life or unique to the life of the modern church. Just read the prayers of the characters of Scripture. Read the Psalms and you'll find that you're in good company crying out in times of difficulty. And not every one of those Psalms turns around with a hopeful ending. It's an ironic thing to say I would encourage you to read Psalm 88 because at first glance it's not very encouraging. But there's no redemption there. There's no hope. You want to know where the psalmist ends in Psalm 88? And darkness is my only friend. And so we're, uh, we're right and we're, we're, it's appropriate to ask, who is this God who determines the will? Is he just some sort of tyrannical, sadistic, capricious God like the God of the Romans, like the gods of other religions who uses suffering like thumbscrews to get us to confess, who uses suffering uh, to punish us or express passive-aggressively his resentment? Do we still suffer as Christians because although God has given us eternal life, he's done it begrudgingly, and so he's going to get in every elbow to the spleen he can along the ride? Remember here that, Jesus, or that Paul here doesn't just leave this word God to be defined by us. He says, by the will of God, but notice how he defines him in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. And that changes the concept quite a bit. And I imagine you're familiar with the fact that this was Jesus' primary way to refer to God. Both for his relationship with God, my Father works and I work until today, but also for us, as he taught us to pray, our Father who is in heaven. In fact, he says at the end of the Gospel of John, speaking to his disciples, I go to my Father and your Father. Sometimes when scholars have looked at the teachings of Jesus Christ and gone looking for what's unique, what doesn't have precedent in the Jews of his day, what can't be found in other religions, many of them have pointed to this reality of God as Father. It exists in the Old Testament, in God's self-revelation. He identifies himself as the father of Israel. But the way that Jesus uses it, when he adds the intimate name Abba, the way that Jesus uses it as a primary lens to understand his relationship with God is truly, pronounceably unique. What does it mean? It means that through the ministry of Jesus Christ, by the salvation freely offered by, through him, we have been adopted into the family of God. It means that God is not just a powerful deity, but a loving father. Remember how Jesus talks about this in prayer. He says, if you were to go to your own parents and you were to ask for a sandwich, would they give you a scorpion? If you were hungry and you asked for an egg, would they give you a stone? And then he says, how much more will the heavenly father give good things to his children when they ask him? I want you to notice what Jesus recognizes there. He recognizes the fact that your parents aren't perfect. 
but even your parents, right, fulfill obligations to take care of you, answer your requests, and want your best interests. Now, he says, if you read Luke's version, your parents being evil, and I've always appreciated that addition, right? It's a recognition. Jesus doesn't have some sort of rose-tinted glasses for our ability as human beings to raise our young, but he says, how much more our Heavenly Father? Now, one of the reasons we struggle with this is because we have this oversimplified view that says anyone who loves me won't allow me to experience pain if they can help it. And so the great great question that's asked by skeptics about God and suffering is put this way. If God is sovereign and yet there is pain, suffering, and evil, then he must not be good. And if God is good, and there's pain and suffering and evil, then he must not be sovereign. He cannot be both sovereign and good. These things can't be by the will of God, and we call him accurately and appropriately Father. One of those must go. What does that question state? It says that all pain and suffering is irreconcilable with love. When I was maybe 12 or 13, my cousins had come over to my house. They were both younger than me. My cousin Josh was probably five or six. And they were true all the way down to the depth of their being roughhouse boys. Like I was twice their size and I didn't like to play with them. And it had been this way since they were little. I can remember when the older brother, Bo, as if it's not built into his name, I can remember when he, at the age of two, would say, I'm, and then he'd just name a Disney villain. It didn't matter whichever, whichever one. He loved all of them, and I would literally try and get out of his way because what came next was just a steamrolling headbutt. Okay? So they're running around the house that I grew up in, and this house is in Yakima, which means it has a screen door. I know in Seattle that's a rarity. In Yakima, every house had a screen door, and ours was metal. Uh, And it also had a tendency to shut itself really fast. There's these little um, dials that you tune in that controls how a screen door slams, and ours hadn't been tuned in a while. So the older brother went out the door, and the door slammed behind him, and the younger brother went through the door. And he didn't go fully through the door, but his foot went right under it, in a space that's too small for even a six-year-old's human foot. And he tore up his foot pretty good. And so we took him to the hospital, and they were giving him stitches. It wasn't a ton of stitches. He wasn't mangled for life. But the doctor was working on his foot, and suddenly Josh sat up on the table, and he looked the doctor in the eye, and he said, you're not being very nice to me. Because the truth is that stitches hurt. But there's a major difference between hurt and harm. C.S. Lewis says that one of the reasons we can't understand pain is because we prefer kindness to love. He says kindness will put down an animal instead of letting it suffer because what kindness means is to stop pain at any cost. But love recognizes that some painful things are productive, that they do good things, that they work beneficial things, that they bring healing. Cancer is awful. Chemo is only slightly better is a wicked and terrible and destructive thing. 
And yet we beg our relatives to go through the process of that pain because we want healing for them. If your parents being evil recognize the benefits of chemo, how much more your heavenly father? It continues on here. I want you to recognize that he calls him God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now some some translations may even say God our Father and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's not necessary for what I'm about to say. You just have to read one more sentence. Look at what it says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's another window. This is not just some mere heavenly father. This is the father of Jesus Christ. And that gives us another context, another window into the reality of suffering. Do you know there's one place, one place where we find the title father lacking in the mouth of Jesus? One place where he speaks directly to God and doesn't use that title. It says he hangs on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, granted, one of the reasons he's clearly doing that is to connect the dots for those who were standing there and all who would hear with what was written not just 500 years, but a thousand years prior in Psalm 22. And so he quotes the opening line and says the equivalent of turn your Bibles to Psalm 22. That doesn't mean that the experience that that psalm predicted wasn't being fully experienced in the event that it predicted, right? It's more than just a footnote or a cross-reference. He is encountering terrible suffering. And not just the suffering of rejection and loneliness, although if you read the preceding passages, those are clearly part of the paradigm. Not just the suffering of betrayal, being turned over to the authorities with a kiss, not just the suffering of injustice or the beating of the Roman guards in the praetorium, not just the lashes on his back or the carrying of that cross, not even the nails through the nerves in your wrist. Have you ever been scratching your wrist and you get that buzz, right, that goes right up your arm? That's where the nails go in crucifixion, right through that primary nerve. But it's not those things that cause him to cry out. He cries out, as in the words of Paul later in this letter, he who knew no sin became sin. He cries out for the first time in his eternal existence, he experiences separation and distance from the loving Father who he did all things that pleased the Father, who he had been with and had known intimately and perfectly what one theologian called experiencing the divine dance of the Trinity, but their separation. And he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we're right-headed, when we're not so myopic that the only suffering we see is our own, there's no greater place to ask the question, why God, than the cross. Because the truth is, a lot of the suffering we experience in our life is self-induced. It's our poor choices. It's our rebellious decisions. It's the consequences of, uh, of things. And we may not feel like we deserve this, 
But as Nick mentioned this morning, the wrath of God remains on us. And so God is fully just not to intervene. Fully just not to interfere. But Jesus, perfectly sinless, living a life that is a direct demonstration of the two great commandments of the Old Testament, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And yet he doesn't just experience the suffering of death, although he tasted that for all men, as it says in Hebrews. He experiences the full frontal consequences of sin. Hours earlier, before he's hanging on that cross, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays a prayer, and he says, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Why does he use that metaphor of the cup? If you read the Old Testament and you go looking for cups, there's only one that foots the bill, and that's the full-strength cup of the wrath of God. And Jesus drank it to the dregs. As it says in Isaiah again, Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. But what did God accomplish through such horror? What was the benefit of such a terror? All redemption, all salvation, the reuniting of God and his fallen creation, the restoration of your life, your adoption into the family of God is founded on horrific suffering. Now that still might make you uncomfortable because uh, in, in the voice of some critics, isn't that just divine child abuse, cosmic child abuse? How are we comfortable with God abusing his child in such a way? That's a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. He's not merely the son of God, he's God himself. You want to know why Christianity has an, a unique answer to Christian suffering? This is the reason, because uniquely in Christianity, God willingly suffered took upon his own shoulders the pain that we experience, encountered the difficulty of living in this world and the destructiveness of other people's sin playing out in his life to the nth degree. And so when we refer to God as the Father of Jesus Christ, we remember that that profoundly affects his fatherhood of us. Because God himself entered into the full suffering that we deserve, the consequence of sin. And so the question becomes this. If that God, who would, as Nick put it this morning, would intervene by grace to save us from hell, if that God allows for us to suffer, even determines that we will, what can we know about that suffering? we can know that there's benefit in it. We can know that there's meaning in it. We can know that there's reasons for it. Listen to how Paul puts it in another one of his letters. This is in Romans chapter 5. Here in Romans chapter 5, Paul is talking about the direct results of the fact that we've been justified. In other words, because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, we are fully forgiven and we stand before God as if righteous. What does that do? He says here 
in chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No more enmity. No more opposition. No more warfare. We have peace. He continues, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. In other words, we can now enter into the throne room of God. We can interact with God. We can ask him for the things we need. He's become not just the ruler, but our father. He continues, he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, listen, verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Not rejoice because we suffer, we rejoice in the midst of our suffering. Why? He says, we rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces. And he says that it produces endurance and endurance character and character hope And hope does not put us to shame because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But let's just take that one little word, produces. First off, remember what Paul is saying here. He's saying, since we have been justified, we can rejoice in suffering because suffering is productive. If you're not a Christian this morning, I can't necessarily make meaning out of your suffering. But, If you stand as justified by Jesus Christ, then I can remind you that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So what you're experiencing now is not punishment. There's no more, not even a drop of the wrath of God for you to drink. Jesus drank it all. And so when you suffer, you can trust that you suffer in the hands of a sovereign God and a loving Father and that that suffering is productive, that it has a purpose, and that that purpose will be met. Does that make suffering more easy? Probably not. Does it make it more endurable? Maybe. Maybe not. In fact, the author of Hebrews says that nobody enjoy suffering while they're going through it, but they rejoice at the end of it. But Paul says there's a sense here where we can rejoice in the reality of suffering in our lives because we can look back to the cross and say, once again, not why, but who. That the one who's allowed me to suffer like this is the one who was there present in my suffering on the cross. The one who was there, who entered into my suffering, who knows how to take the worst element, reality of evil in all of human history and sovereignly use it for a tremendously good purpose. Do you think he can't handle the difficulties of your life? Is he less present now than he was then? Another psalmist puts it this way. He says that God is a very present help in times of trouble. And I know we don't always feel that. But that's what faith means. Faith remembers that this is the type of God who's present in the midst of our suffering as he was present in the death of Jesus. Let's go back to our greeting. I want to highlight a few other things. I find that my flesh, who I am naturally, looks for loopholes, lives in the yabbats, And like all of you, I'd love an escape door out of the reality of suffering that says, yes, maybe I'm suffering right now, but it's because I'm doing it wrong. And if I can just figure it out, then I will live a life of perfect stability and comfort. Here's one of those back doors. I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 2. He says, grace to you and peace to you 
from God our Father. And you go, aha, peace. Peace sounds like a good thing. Peace I'm interested in. Isn't that what God has for us? Isn't that what Paul wants for us? Divinely, in the word of God, isn't that God's goal for us? Have you never read Jeremiah 29, 11? Let's turn there. Maybe you're not familiar with it. Let's just read it, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, side note, that's the word peace, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's a great verse. For some of you, it might be a life verse. I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere on the skin of this audience is a tattoo of this reference, right? This is bumper sticker material. This is what we want to hear that God has for us peace and welfare, but I want you to remember the context. Who is it that Jeremiah is speaking to here? He's speaking to Israel that has been ransacked by Babylon and removed from their land. In fact, you can see it in the context. Look at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. That's the end game. That's the goal, restoration. But what's the present tense? It's exile. Removed from the land, still mourning those the Babylonians have brutally killed. Why is this statement here? Because Israel needs to be reminded in the midst of their suffering that this is what God is doing. Now, I don't know if you're sitting here and feeling like what you're going through is unbearable and this only makes it worse because how could I possibly understand what you're going through? That same sovereign God I'm talking about in your suffering has sovereignly brought these words to your ears this morning. Just like he did through the mouth of Jeremiah to the people of Israel. The thing about suffering is that it blinds us to the goodness and the truth of God but it doesn't make God not good. And it doesn't make his promises untrue. But there's one other greeting that he gives. He doesn't just say in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, peace from God, but also grace. In fact, before we move in, let me just finish it this way. The same Paul who says God wants peace for your life speaks in Philippians of a peace that surpasses understanding. Okay, now I'm not sure you've ever thought about what that phrase means, but it clearly means a peace despite your questions, not a peace through answers, right? And that's available, and it's there, but it's an action of faith. It's a clinging to the rock in the midst of the storm. It's a proclamation of the truth, a preaching to yourself that God is good and God is present and I can trust him. But the other word he uses here is grace. Now, the usual way we talk about grace is very simple. It's that God gives us good things we don't deserve, and that's absolutely true. 
If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, grace defines for us the reality of God's relationship with mankind. That through Jesus Christ, he freely offers salvation. Christianity doesn't say, here are the things that you must do to get right with God. It says, here are the things God has done to put your relationship right. Please receive it freely in Jesus Christ. That's why we always talk about grace. Grace and not works. Grace and not merit. Not you earning, but God giving. But it also means more than that. Grace is also God giving us the ability that we don't have. I want you to see how this interacts with Paul's suffering later in this letter. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to pick up in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So what's going on here? Paul says that he's got something going on in his life that he defines as both a thorn in the flesh which I'll remind you is an open and ongoing wound. It's not like stepping on a thorn and having it removed. He feels the presence of it all the time. He calls it, uh, what it says in the old King James, a buffeting of the devil, as if he's just in the ring with Satan himself and being pummeled all the time. He doesn't tell us anything behind the metaphor. We don't know what he's going through, but it's clearly very painful, okay? And so he takes it to God in prayer more than once, Three times, God, please deliver me from this. And listen to how God responded to him in verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What does grace mean here? Does it just mean that he's freely given him salvation and says, hey, you should recognize that you are saved, and so all of this pain is not that big of a deal. No, it means something greater than that. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What is he saying here? He's saying that God is very present in suffering to help us endure. He's very present in suffering to do something good in the midst. In fact, notice how Paul responds to this statement. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, this is a provocative passage. He says here that the reason he's experiencing this hardship is specifically because he knows so much about God. He's been given this unique revelation to the degree that he would be arrogant if he wasn't limping around in pain. I know that doesn't make you comfortable, but I want you to recognize the conclusion that Paul comes to in it. He says, if this is the price of the true power of God working in me, I'll gladly pay it. Sometimes, suffering does something that nothing else can do in our life. It teaches us of the tremendous depths of God's grace. It demonstrates to us how much he truly loves us. 
When you go through a small difficulty in your life and you throw up a praise to the Lord, that's one thing. When you come out of the valley of the shadow of death, you've discovered that God is a savior who cares about his people. And Paul says, if this, if this is what it looks like to know the power of Christ, then let Satan do what he wants. Let pain be a constant part of my life if through that I can experience the full balm and healing that God has. He says here that suffering glorifies God. Why? Because in the midst of that suffering, God is present and working. Because in the midst of that suffering, God is going to overcome. Let's go back to peace and we'll finish here. Let's see if I can turn here from memory. Jesus says, my peace I give to you. And then in the next sentence he says, in this world you will have tribulation. How do you reconcile those two? He says, my peace I give to you in the world you have tribulation, but rejoice I have overcome the world. It comes down to the who. I can't parse your suffering and say, this is why you're going through it. I can't show you the lesson that God is teaching you in your life so that you can learn it really quickly and get out of this mess. I can't necessarily even enter in and alleviate your suffering. Although, like Paul calls us to in Philippians 4, I might be able to enter in and suffer with you. The pastor who led me to Jesus. I saw him a few years after. And he was visibly shaken up and I asked him what was going on and he explained that a young man in his church who had three kids and a baby on the way had died over the weekend in a skiing accident. And he'd been asked to do the funeral. And he was just wrestling with the reality of this. And tears were welling up in his eyes. This was not merely a man he cared about, but he knew that everyone sitting in that audience would have the same question that he did. Why? And he said, you know what, Justin, I can't, I can't answer the why, but I can tell you the who. And he spoke that from a place of pain. He spoke that from a place of suffering. And that's why I've never forgotten it, because it was validated in the moment. And it's been validated in my own life. In the quilt of what God is doing in the Christian life, in the teaching of who God is, we have not merely tremendous resources to find meaning in suffering. We find unique understanding. Because the same hands that open up and allow these things into your life are marked with the scars of the punishment that you deserve. God's love for us has been proven. And so when we suffer, we suffer in the context of a sovereign and loving God who has a plan of hope and a future and good things for us and is present in the suffering and offers both peace despite our circumstances and grace to overcome them. Let's pray.
Father, I know these truths are true, and yet I know that some of us are in a place this morning where we have to cry out like the man whose son had died. When Jesus said, all things are possible to those who believe, and he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I know that's the best that some of us can profess this morning is, Lord, I trust you, help my distrust. But I pray that you would help us to see the value in suffering, not because suffering is good, but because you are. And for those who are struggling right now, whether their pain is known or unknown, whether they feel isolated and alienated through it, um, or they're in a place where, where people are just trying to figure out how to navigate it with them, I pray that they would understand that they're not alone this morning. That this isn't an interruption in God's plan in their life, but that it is your plan. And so you're present and working through it. And I ask humbly, Lord, knowing that I'm not there yet, knowing that none of us are, that you would teach us to rejoice in the midst of our suffering. That we would learn, like Paul, that even if we're facing death or persecution or the powers on this earth or the powers in heaven, that nothing will separate us from the love of God, and that's enough. One day, Lord, we will know just as we are known. Now we see in a mirror dimly and we can't make sense of these things. But we can remind ourselves of the greatest horrific act in human history and how you use that to bring about the greatest good. And we can remind ourselves that the self-same God who laid his life down on our behalf made us great and precious promises that we can hold on to. So I pray for peace for your people, and I pray for grace. And I ask these in the name of Jesus Christ who died for us. Amen. We always use the second.